Now, I think I was asked to do an essay for the catalogue on um, the sunny south and the Mentone period, the seaside paintings, because somebody remembered, maybe Terry, maybe Francis, that I'd once compared the um, figure on the right-hand side with the tree. Branching pose beside a branching tree, he's become a tree spirit, I said. <laughs> Even though it's meant to be very realistic, there's a sort of symbolist or classicist subtext. So I was quite happy to take on the, the beach subjects. I'm retired and living on a Tasmanian Riviera myself. Um, the gangsterish real estate developers of boom time Melbourne were advertising Mentone, which they pronounced Mentoni, the Italian style. It's, it's, it's a town on the Italian Riviera, the border of France and Italy. They were advertising the new Mentoni as the Riviera of the South. It's a Riviera subject. Um, really, I'm talking mainly now in this brief few slideshows about one phrase that one of the newspaper critics produced, quite an Italian air, which of course means also a kind of classical air. Anyway, these two paintings I think are the finest of all Tom Roberts's paintings. They don't creak like the big nationalist efforts. <laughs> they aren't obviously looking like the forest of Fontainebleau, like the Box Hill ones. Barbizon. There are Barbizon elements here, but there are academic figures that are doing something that could be Australian and very specifically Australian. I just think they're marvellous. His absolute best two paintings. Midsummer subjects, they are painted in the open air. Slumbering Sea is not only titled with a place name, but it's conspicuously inscribed with the word mentone, it's there or it's there, somewhere down there. The geographical specificity is significant. However, this beach was a mile or more from Mentone railway station, so it's quite an excursion. The magazine Titbits, gossip, called in at Roberts's studio for a preview of these two paintings and reported that the place, places and the people in both of them were known. Quote, the Chatelaine, at the studio preview, is an artist's sister, knows all the pictures, the models, and the scenes. She simultaneously bestows information and coffee. <laughs> we fancy it ought to be called Where Are the Police? That's the nudity. <laughs> it is a bay of the loveliest blue, and the trees seem to move in the breeze, and looking at the Australian sky, we feel like forgiving boys who disrobe, end of quote, in titbits. <laughs> Local standards, in fact, encouraged leniency about daytime male nakedness, especially in secluded places like this undeveloped and well-wooded shore. It's Ricketts Point, in fact, a bit further from Mentone even than the cove in Slumbering Sea. When the paintings were reviewed a few weeks later, the Argus was unworried, and its critic, James Smith, has been perhaps unjustly demonised. 
because of things he wrote about, or was provoked to write about, the Nine Berlin Precious Exhibition a year or so later. He wrote, quote, The sunny south represents some bathers who are about to emerge from the shadows of the tea tree. He got that wrong. In fact, it's Banksia integrifolia. <laughs> to plunge into the sunshine and the sea. And slumbering sea mentone, a broadly painted coast scene is full of light and warmth and colour. Full of light and warmth and colour. Simple physical thing. Continue with the quote. He takes opportunity to exhibit in most favourable light his studio training in painting the nude model, combined with his eye for colour and judgement in composition. Gorgeous colour, very subtle, complex composition. He's terrific. In Slumbering Sea Mentone, critics specially notice the rocks and stones and cliffs Quote, ragged, escarped, red, end of quote. Appreciation of rocky landscapes followed the Barbizon school taste for rocky scenes in the forest of Fontainebleau, outside Paris. We know that in 1886, young Streeton had written overseas and received photographs of work by Corot, Camille Corot, who had been regarded since the 1850s as the greatest landscape painter of the time, not the hottest or newest, like Bastien Lepage, but the greatest. Two years after Robert's painted slumbering scene, McCubbin's untraced 9 by 5 impression, which he titled The Glowing Clay Bank, must have been influenced by Corot's early, tame, but very beautiful, straightforward landscapes of clay banks, gravel beds and quarries. The red rock cliffs of Beaumaris and the white clay cliffs of Mentone made this Melbourne coast a Barbazonian heaven for Australian landscape painters. And by the way, that white clay cliff at Mentone got vegetated as a make-work project in the Great Depression and it isn't a white clay cliff today. In the 1920s, a modernist painter named his, a modernist textile designer called Michael O'Connell named his house Barbizon, up on top of that cliff. However, it's the figure compositions and their meanings, more than the Australian pleasure in, quote, light and warmth and colour, unquote, that give these canvases unusual complexity. They're quite academic and classical in their figure compositions, but they're also about the seriousness of pleasure. Roberts almost always populated his open-air landscapes, and Mary Eagle has emphasised that his people tell us understated stories. Slumbering seas controlled by an off-centre figure, a woman seated on rocks, with a female companion and a boy and a dog, she receives a boating party. The particular cove in the painting was, and still is, a site visited to study geology and fossils. From that local fact, we can improvise a little story based on exercising the body and improving the mind. 
And we can note that in a later century, the present-day Australian celebrity scientist Tim Flannery began as a child, fossil gatherer, right here at Burmores. Roberts's two ladies in summertime white must have walked for over a mile along the cliffs from Mentoni, which is just up there, whose land-booming developer preferred this Italian pronunciation, and he hoped to, to attract well-off and well-educated Melburnians in his development. The black dog is there to match the black sashes at the ladies' waists, and the young boy who's and they've got a red a young boy with them whose red cap is not simply a focus point for the elaborations of the centralised composition. Late 19th century Melbourne mothers, in fact, dressed their children in red to ensure better visibility in the bush if they strayed. A local boatman from working-class Mordialloc, which is well down to the right off the picture, has brought another couple, perhaps grandparents, across from Mentoni to rendezvous with the working party, walking party at their nature study and perhaps to picnic. The sail has been lowered, it's not a quick turnaround. The voyage home by water will be less strenuous than the long walk out. It's an outing intended to civilise a young boy. There's also a hint of those biblical or mythological figure compositions in which aged experience and childhood innocence encounter each other after a journey. Renaissance art is full of such things. An artist's sister, mentioned by Titbits, was most likely to be one of Maccabin's sisters. And she could have told the visitors to the studio preview that she posed in the same dress for two different figures in the slumbering sea landscape. And she could have told that the three men, they're not really boys, one, two, three, in the sunny south signified the artist's own companions, two of whom, with Roberts, had rented a cottage on the cliff top behind the slumbering sea. The principal figure is an idealised Frederick McCubbin. He looked fatter, squatting beside the tent in the artist's camp a minute ago. <laughs> He'd recently been appointed drawing master at the National Gallery School so he could afford to help rent a cottage. His and Roberts's one-time fellow student at the National Gallery School, Louis Abrams, now ran a cigar-making firm and scarcely painted any longer. He's the one in shadow, seated cross-legged on the ground and wearing dark trousers and thus resembles a half-animal fawn figure mingled with the roots of a tree. The, the three men in their early 30s, Roberts, Abrams and McCubbin, had just encountered a 19-year-old art student Arthur Streeton, painting on the same beach. Streeton quite often spoke of his own very white skin, so that's certainly him, emerging shyly from the side of a tree as if he were a classical dryad. Tree spirit moving towards the water. Dryads are water spirits too. The central figure, as I said, takes up 
a pose rhyming with the tree beyond, but it's a standard art school pose. Arms behind head to create a taut torso for good sketching of the musculature. And it's a memory of the time when Roberts, McCubbin and Abrams, eight years earlier, had improvised a life-drawing club at the National Gallery School and acted as each other's models. Memory of eight years earlier, when they might have had better figures. Most significantly is the visual rhyme with the tree trunk and the fact that he's become a tree spirit, but this is in the end, a modern, naturalistic version of a figure from classical Italian mythology. The press had noticed a seascape with quite an Italian air about it. Quite an Italian air. Roberts's figures in a landscape would have seemed Italian by reference to the similarly scaled figures in idealised landscapes of pleasure by Corro, such as his view near Naples, oof, uh, what have I hit that's wrong back? View near Naples contains a shirtless, not very realistic, Neapolitan fisherman dancing. The, uh, a, another painting by Corot that was the most famous painting of his in the world and would have been seen in a museum in Paris when Roberts was there two years earlier was a dance of not very drunken naked nymphs and fauns. It was simply called Dance of Nymphs and the title made it more innocent than it really is. But anyway, Landscapes of Pleasure by Corot with this scale of figures would have been well known to Roberts and everybody. Next point about the sunny south is that the young men illustrate a sequence right to left. And it's interesting that Lee has pointed out a right to left sequence in the winter morning at Gardner's Creek, opposite and more interesting and more tense than the traditional left-to-right shift to the eye, a right-to-left sequence of sitting, standing, and heading off, walking. Familiar sort of thing to do in French painting by Jean-Francois Millet in modern French realism. However, this is more than a description of bodies in repose and movement, Roberts' little story might be that sitting together beneath the trees, shirts off, chatting, the restless young one, only 19, got tired of art teacher's talk, and the Banksia Grove, after all, evokes Plato's Olive Grove, which was the academy in ancient Athens, and the young one has departed for a swim. The main man has just completed undressing too, stretches pleasurably, and will soon follow into the therapeutic salt water. This isn't cleanliness, like those dawn and dusk river scenes, which are for washing. Salt water is for pleasure and health. 
Um, the oldest one remains seated and might not go into the water at all. A little three-part story. The other star of the coast scenes is going to be Conda, but we'll come back to him because we must polish off a not very important Macubbin who was there at Mentone. Macubbin was the oldest of the gang. He produced the Shaw, which is an exact companion to Roberts's Slumbering Sea. They're both views of a similar group of figures arrived in the same boat at the same landing place. You can see little posts sticking in the shore for the little boat to come into. McCubbins looks south out into the open sea at Port Phillip Bay, and that is why Bayside City Council's coastal art trail is wrong. And don't bother about trying their website. It was a good idea, they had a nice try, but they've got it wrong. The sign, which is slight, some of the signs on the coastal trail are vandalised anyway. But when I was there in October, the McCubbin sign was still there and in the wrong place. The reason why they didn't put it in the right place, didn't pick that it was exactly the same bit of shore as Roberts's slumbering sea, is because McCubbin has simply suppressed the framing cliffs that in fact are there if you look south. They're painting exactly the same subject. McCubbins is bigger. He was trying to be, make the most important painting from the expedition, the Midsummer Campaign. He held it back from the show that Roberts put his into, perhaps knowing it might fail by comparison. And anyway, he was putting his masterpiece, Lost, into the same exhibition. But the lukewarm praise said of McCubbin's ashore, although the tone of the picture strikes us as not warm enough for the season, indicated by the attire of the figures, it is, however, impressionist. The word was being used in early 1887 by the critics in Melbourne. It's impressionist in its general character. The execution of the broken rock, shingle, herbage and pools of the water, however, in the foreground, betokens too much attention to detail. End of quote. A nice point. The toy vessel sailing in a puddle on McCubbin's shore is an accurate model of a gaff-rigged cooter boat. Cooter is spelled C-O-U-T-A, for those who don't know. And that means it's a pleasingly educational item helping to familiarise a boy with local inventiveness. Cooter boats were commercial fishing boats developed at Queenscliff, further down Port Phillip Bay in the mid-1880s, just at this time, and they were invented for working Port Phillip Bay and Bass Strait. Streeton, who'd been encountered by chance, or maybe he'd been waiting to be picked up by the older ones, but they claimed to have found him by chance on the shore painting an open-air picture himself. This painting was his first big success in the same exhibition that those two Robertses were in, and he titles it 
Australian in December, he must have unthinkingly signed and dated it 87 when he sent it off to the exhibition in March 87 without realising that contradicted the December, which has to be 1886 in Australia. Its title is assertively nationalist, Australian Decembers are never snowbound. However, it's not really a cultural item, it's a visual artistic item. At first sight, we respond to this sort of thing in a purely visual way. We just admire, as critics did, whom I'll quote in a moment, the extraordinary freshness of the air and light, the extraordinary freshness and rapidity of the handling, and fairly clever composition, a bent stook going up to enclose a rather wonderful oval form there. The Argus, the dreaded James Smith, being good again, spotted the new talent. Quote, Mr. Arthur Streeton, a young impressionist, gives us a rapid and vigorous sketch of a harvest field in an Australian December, the peculiar qualities of which will commend themselves to artists rather than to the general public. And the Daily Telegraph said, the Australian December of Arthur Streeton is the sketch, it's quite a big painting, sketch of greatest promise in the gallery. Those standing stooks and pearly banks of cumulus before the breeze must have been boldly put in at a two or three hours sitting. So maybe the young artist had fed to the journalist the fact that it was done very fast. There might have been a bit of cheating, a bit of touching up a couple of months later, but it went off the exhibition, but the myth of two or three hours was planted in the press at the very beginning. Continue the quote. The artist is not yet 20 and is a student at the National Gallery. He has a future before him. End of quote. In April 1887 a month after this painting was exhibited, and Roberts's paintings. Somebody you've never, you've never heard of, I guess. Llewellyn Jones, a friend of Streeton's, a one-shot wonder, and this is it, that painting. Nothing further was ever heard of him. He won a student prize for landscape painting with an emphatically rocky, Barbazon taste, but unusually bright beach near Cheltenham. It's a subject just along the cove which you have seen already in Roberts's Slumbering Sea. Now, there is present-day Mentone Railway Station. Cheltenham was an established... That's a railway station too. was an established farming area and that wheat, that oat field, not wheat, would have been somewhere here between Mentone, between Cheltenham and the top of Burmorris Bay, which was then called Cheltenham Beach. The cove which Robertson McCubbin painted in is there and is now utterly degraded. You get furious if you go there. Something called the Burmorris Motor Yacht Squadron has fenced it off, security fences guard dogs probably but it's very easy to, to, to recognise it all and just a few yards up Cromer Road, whatever it's called is where 
of a farmer who'd had the whole of what was not yet called Burmorris, had had a farm, Moise's farm was there. So that's where puce-coloured fly-spotted walls were remembered by Streeton and where there were mulberry trees and things that they perhaps ate before they were properly ripe. And it was very easy to walk down from that old farm labourer's cottage waiting for redevelopment by a gangster land boomer. Easy to walk down there with your easels and umbrellas to do the two paintings that Robertson McCubbin did. A bit further along, oh, it's, it's quite a long walk from that station to here, over a mile, nearly two kilometres. Even further along here is Ricketts Point. And that beach called Watkins Bay is the beach which has the Banksia Grove that has the sunny south painting in it. There's no name on this map for Knob Point, which other maps do name. There's a very child-friendly little pool between the two reefs, which are Knob Point and Ricketts Point. So remember that when we get to a painting by Conda right at the end. Conda, whom you'll encounter in a second, you all know A Holiday at Mentone. That's Warrigal Road, didn't have that name then. At the very end of Warrigal Road, stood the baths that occur in Condor's A Holiday at Mentone. They survived for only a couple of years and then got demolished and replaced by something else. But before we get to Condor, we'll polish off another Bayside subject by Roberts. Now, this young woman perched on a cooter boat which she's probably using for recreational sailing, or her boyfriend is, not commercial fishing, looks as if it records something actually seen, not elaborately and artificially composed, like the other paintings we've been looking at. Not a summary scene, as most likely begun in October 1886, still in the spring, and actually observed on site at Queenscliff, which was by far the most fashionable of all the Bayside resorts, and it had been established 30 years earlier. Roberts was at Queenscliff on a paddle steamer cruise all round Port Phillip Bay to make a sketch of the promenade, there it is on the right, for a wood engraving in a series of sketches called A Holiday Tour Round Port Phillip. So holiday subjects around Port Phillip were a standard thing for the commercial press. And some of these major painters stooped to illustrate in the commercial press. They didn't mind stooping. A newer resort than Queenscliff, but older than Mentoni, was also reached by steamers and had been given another Italian place name, and that was Sorrento about 1870 is when it got its name. But as we now know, the newest Bayside resort, which opened for business in 1884, was Mentoni, advertised as the Riviera of the South. And at last, Conda's gorgeous A Holiday at Mentoni. The newspaper illustration is there for several reasons. It's a contrast with Brighton, which had had a railway 
connection since the 1850s, it was incredibly crowded. There'd be a thousand, several thousand people racing off the train every Sunday. A holiday usually meant a Sunday. There are very few public holidays. A bit dusty, either walking to the beach or hiring a handsome cab from the station to the beach. Shrubbery infested with snoozing <laughs> ladies. A, a nasty crowd, probably, probably a bit middle class or lower middle class. Whereas Mentoni had pretensions. Conda had done lots of press illustration of compartmented imagery like this in Sydney before he came to Melbourne. He was familiar with compartmentalisation. What are we looking at on the left in a holiday at Mentone? A compartmented composition. And he was very familiar with commercial art of the kind that you see there on the right. Now, um, the source, Roberts's most Japanese painting, coming from both Whistler and direct from Japanese woodcuts, and Conda's most Japanese painting. But the aesthetic movement and Whistler loved Japanesery, and that's what we love this Conda for as well as for other things. He produced... Is that a time... Oh. Okay, I'll race very fast. This showpiece for Melbourne, produced in about two weeks after landing from Sydney, and it didn't really get noticed by the press, but it has become for us perhaps the most beautiful of all Australian Impressionist paintings, and the one that... um, we like it most because of the beach, the warmth and all that, but also because it makes Australian art look very modern. Whistler, instead of rain and Tokyo, instead of rain in Japanese art, Whistlerism and Japanese aestheticism converted to the glare of midday, very Australian sun. Quick point. Most of these figures get, got dropped in back in the studio. The observation of the light and the colour is the fabulous thing. But already a few months earlier in Sydney, he'd done this white sand scene. And there's one observed thing, obviously, there. An ungainly man, inelegant, chatting up a lady. And all the other figures, you can guess, were just off-the-shelf from sketches, from commercial illustration, done easily, they look elegant. But the inelegance of that is always a very nice thing to encounter with the practised elegance of the other figures. The same thing has happened here. Those figures are the only ones that are certainly sketched on site. The old old and probably well-off couple who lived at Mentoni must have been a bit startled by seeing an artist sketching on the sand. And it's definitely plein air because there are some grains of sand. Art history and conservation loves finding grains of sand. (laughs) Proof of plein air status. 
can't have possibly brought a friend to pose for that silly, amusing horizontality, but it only got sketched in on site and filled in back in the studio in um, Collins Street. All these are probably finished in the studio and just placed, positioned by the mate who was there. This figure is completely done in the studio and she obliterates something that had been there before. This is almost the only painting by Conda which does what Roberts almost always did. has a, a bit of an anecdote, a story in it. She is reading quite serious current affairs, politics in the bulletin. You can tell by the pink, pinkness of its cover. When he got back to the studio, Conda added another pink bulletin there and made a bit of an anecdote about uh, she's pretending not to be interested in the flirtation that might be imminent. We love it also because elation, things rise up, up, up. But flirtation is an elated kind of emotion too, as well as the visual forms of horizontal bands rising. Quick, a few weeks later, Whitecliffe of Mentone got recycled in his imaginary desert scene for the hot wind. Commercial art teaches you to cut and paste and cheat. And there's, there's a lot to be said for cutting and pasting and cheating and recycling good things that you've found. A masterpiece by Conda to almost end with. A child got added after he sent the sketch off to the exhibition catalogue. That pole got added, that got added. He did lots of changes of mind, but it's a bit like slumbering seamen tone. Mothers, children, sort of educational things going on. Much more unworried observation here. A tiny little 9x5 sketch, later than the 9x5 exhibition, in which every figure is obviously observed. There's nothing formulaic about it. And two things that I'd never seen until, uh, like yesterday, a, a, a stretched 9x5 in this extraordinary narrow horizontal format, a touch of sea coast up there. It's at Queenscliff, figures suspended from the top edge, amazingly aesthetic composition. And a few days after painting A Holiday at Mentone, he joined the Ozone, a paddle steamer, on a special excursion with the Centennial Choir to Sorrento and then on a steam train to the back beach. They're all getting drunk and having fun. And there's an ungainly elderly figure, to contrast with all the youthful ease that is there otherwise. And that is the end of that. <laughs> <laughs>